this this to me was like one of the first like really critical pieces of of mm. operationalizing design is mm. design libraries that, yeah that makes sense i think my head is like thinking like a developer like a, i type one line right and, and the then a bunch line of stuff runs yeah yeah i've i've i, I kind of figured that's where your question was too but i i felt like it was important to point to the things that weren't yes. immediately apparent and to me like automating design through libraries and design systems is a huge mm -hmm. part of this. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ops of Design. Today's episode is the last of a three-part series where Red and I discussed the Design Ops Summit 2020. As we did in the previous episode, we touch on some of the presentations given at the summit. As always, we hope you find some value in this episode. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the show. So I guess circling back to the theme for day three, the Resilient Design Ops Organization. Um, mm -hmm. The, 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 the theme itself was kind of interesting. I didn't get a sense that like the whole day felt like it was pointing towards like resilience. Um, I don't know, and this isn't a, a judgment. It just, for me kind of walking away from it, it felt like it was somewhat more like some of the strategic layer and maybe that's what they were trying to approach by it. But like, uh, let's see, there was, um lisa who talked about like you know being a chief of staff which was really interesting um mm -hmm. we had a couple of folks talking about accessibility ops um the fact that there was a presence of accessibility not only in one instance but two different talks in this conference i was super excited about um mm -hmm. for me i was the one person kind of hammering down people's throats six years ago at the organization I was at previously talking to them about like the importance of accessibility and being like, Hey, it's mm. just like, we've been arguing about how, you know, design needs to be, um, you know, kind of at the seat at like day zero sort of situation. It was like, why are we not giving accessibility the same, um, import? Like mm. it's just as important. Like it's, like yeah. the laws are in place. They may not be enforcing them yet at the time, but now everything's starting to get, you know, a lot more critical and they're starting to become all of these like lawsuits. And what's interesting, I was talking to one of the folks in the cohort about this. They're like, why is there so much like buzz about accessibility all of a sudden? I was like, the laws have been around for a while. Mm -hmm. It's just, they're now starting to enforce them. And enforcement's coming in the shape of lawsuits. And what's happened is these large companies the the pain and the cost of changing things was far greater than the potential of a lawsuit and mm -hmm. now that lawsuits are happening left and right all of a sudden that pain of getting lawsuits has overshadowed the change that needs to happen so what's happening is yeah. like there's this whole risk averse sort of discussion of what's happening in organizations and it's like oh well it was risky for us to actually change anything before now it's riskier for us to not do anything mm -hmm. so it, it has nothing to do with the fact of it <laughs> uh 
I don't want to say completely, but it feels like it's a business decision more than it is like the ethical reasoning behind like, hey, we should be doing this because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, although there's a lot of support and in both of these, you know, conversations and, you know, we work with Sherry and she's been a huge advocate for shaping, you know, the culture um, from accessibility as well as uh, Tamar, who's on our team from accessibility ops and really helping people understand that like making something accessible isn't just like, you know, making something usable for seven to 10% of a population of your users. Like there's doing what's right, that there's being inclusive, but there's also this part of it too, which I found has been really interesting. And I'm not sure where it came from. I know the first time I was introduced to it was from Sherry, which was like this idea that at some point in your life, you're going to experience some disability. Mm -hmm. It's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And that disability may be um, situational. It may be temporary. It may be permanent. So mm -hmm. if we really want to start thinking about like, if we want to be selfish about it, it's like, well, okay, well, if we start applying, uh, you know, accessible design and inclusive design, we're doing it for ourselves because at some point we're going to need it. So let's start doing it now instead of trying to retrofit shit, you know, seven, 10 years down the road. <laughs> yeah. Which would be even more, more of a headache. You know, it's that same principle of design debt, right? Like you're yes. rushing to build something and you have this debt. Well, you know, people are building this accessibility debt that they're going to have to fix eventually. Yep. Yep. And how much more costly is it going to be to go through and retrofit things after the fact versus doing it right the first time? So, right. you know, fortunately, you know, with things like accessibility ops and what we're doing with teams and, you know, doing the work with Clarity, our design system and having all the evangelization education that's going around it, we're getting people to, you know, see the value of doing this early on doing this mm -hmm. in the discovery phases, like trying to understand like, you know, who are our personas and how can we, you know, effectively design things for them before we start getting things already into the implementation phase to realize that we've got a lot of problems. True. Um, I think, what was it? Uh, Susan and Hillary's talk on accessibility ops for all the things that were, I found relatable um, one of the things they talked about was leveraging allies and advocates uh, to build um, empathy for accessibility within the organization. And this is one of the things that Sherry and Tamara are doing like incredibly well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the advocates program that we're building and how they're building education, sort of education, sort of like a community around it. And the idea that it's it's not one or two people in some random department that are just like kind of, um, you know, being these sort of gatekeepers for a product team. It's like mm -hmm. you're evangelizing the idea and the value of accessible and inclusive design um, at the designer level. So the designer becomes that spokesperson. They start mm -hmm. becoming the advocate. They start saying like, we need to do these things for these reasons because not only does it make better sense for our customers and our users, it makes business sense for us too. So mm -hmm. that's a shift that I'm starting to see within our organization. And I'm really excited to finally see that sort of stuff happen. Um, building that advocacy and that like empathy uh, beyond 
an accessibility person because it's in their title. Having it happen at the designer layer uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I need to do a better job of, of being a, an accessibility advocate. You know, I, I can recall all the way back to like 2013 um, when at my previous company when we used Bootstrap as a basic framework for our product. When PayPal kind of created this um, accessible. Yeah, the accessible um, version of Bootstrap. Yeah, that was a big deal. And we incorporated that, but it, I never really got too into the weeds about all the details about it and never really thought about it much. Right. It wasn't until here with VMware that when we had the dedicated accessibility team, I started to realize, oh, okay, yeah, it's this is pretty important. I need to get on board with it. Yeah. And I still need to do a better job, like finish the advocacy training and all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm definitely one of those people early on who, who questioned it and really didn't think about it as much or, or care for it as much. But I think I've come around and start to realize, you know, especially some of the things you say, you know, uh, you mentioned that Sherry shared with you. It's like you can't argue against it anymore. No. I, I don't see any justifiable, justifiable reasons not to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 going to happen at some point. It's going to have to happen at some point. And yeah. um, it's better to be proactive than get hit hard with it in a you know lawsuit and have to react to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, just like anything, right? In this situation, there's so many things that when it affects the bottom line, then it gets the attention that it needs to. And yeah. accessibility lawsuits are affecting the bottom line. So, yep, yeah. If you're if if you're essentially going to lose deals and lose customers because your your product experience is not accessible, um, all of a sudden, like people are like jumping through hoops. Like, how do we how do we keep this business? Well, yeah. These people that have been talking to you for several years now about making things accessible, <laughs> those are the people you want to work with because they right. know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, the thing about the uh, Susan and Hillary's talk too that I appreciated was they were talking about this idea of uh, translation. So hmm. if, if anybody's had the, <laughs> the joy of reading through uh, uh, WCAG, WCAG, however you pronounce it. Mm, yes. Um, the guidelines, they're not as bad as legalese, but a lot of it happens to be. Like you have to read through it and then kind of be like, what is it they're saying? Um, and what they were talking about is that they had spent some time actually translating the things that were important to designers and engineers. So translating um, specific, you know, call outs from the, the, WCAG, um, uh, I think they were looking at like the 2.0. Like right now, I believe 2.1's mm. out and 2.2 is coming out soon or something. Uh, don't quote me mm-hmm. on that. But um, one of the barriers or entry is that those guidelines are really difficult for folks to understand. So it's like, as a designer, it's like, okay, accessibility is important. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I want to get behind this, but I don't know what to do. Like, I don't understand mm. half the stuff that's in here. How, yeah. how can I understand this? So part of their sort of um, their mission and you know accessibility ops is to translate it and make it very layman, very easy to understand. You know, maybe make checklists, maybe create very simple sort of presentations on like this is what this means and how it relates directly to the work that you're doing. So all of a sudden, like the barrier entry, that friction again is reduced. Yep. So now all of a sudden it's like, well, 
we've given you a very easy way to understand these guidelines. Now you can implement them without fail, without excuse, yeah. without friction. Um, and this is one of you know some of the things that uh, Tamar and Sherry have been working on too, which is I find very helpful. Um, you know, I've kind of taken it for granted, you know, being pretty well versed in them for a number of years, but thinking about it, it's like new folks coming in. Anytime you've got something that's very technical, you've got to figure out a way to simplify it. This is an, this is an operational problem. How do you mm -hmm. simplify something that's technical so that somebody that's never had experience with it can understand it quickly, start implementing it, it can be successful, and it becomes second nature for them. You know, I don't want to get too too off topic, but I, I think, you know, that comment you, you said, taking advantage or... Um, I think luckily for us here, the team that we've been a part of, there's, I think we could say that about a lot of things, especially design ops. I mean, how far the ops has come in our organization in such little time is, is amazing. And all the tools that we have into place, again, not even mentioning everything that the accessibility team is doing. It's like, I don't take it for granted. I, I think some people may, but you know, I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouths, but to think everyone is on the same level as what we're doing is, is kind of crazy. And it's just amazing. All, all everything that, that has happened and everything that's at our disposal. And again, like everything we have for accessibility is like, you don't even have to think or <laughs> you just need to move your mouse, click, click here. And you have what you need. You have the tools. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It just, it continues to reaffirm like the value of like what we're doing. I, you know, I see that so much of what we're doing is like education based, like we're helping designers become better designers, become more well-rounded designers, become more informed designers, um, more effective designers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is like, how do we, you know, how do we scale the knowledge that we have? How do we scale the knowledge of folks within our team so that they can, you know, share that information more effectively across other folks? Yeah. Um, you know, and this comes down to, you know, whether it's a technical domain, which we happen to be a part of, you know, how does a new person get that knowledge that they need? A lot of times it's from the team that they work directly with, you know, whatever resources that they've created. Again, another operational thing. Right. You know, how do we get this person, this new person, whether it's new to this domain or, you know, maybe they're, you know, transferring from one team to another team and they don't know the, the specifics of that, that given role. Um, there's a there's a knowledge sort of instance. You know, this is where I see, you know, our growth and you know why we have, you know, Salome working on um, practice and education. It's like there's such a huge need for making sure that folks understand, like, how do they learn effectively when it comes mm -hmm. to this new information, whether it's accessibility exactly. or whether it's, you know, design reviews or, you know, end to ends or whatever it might be. It's like these are all barriers and friction for designers. It's like a new person or an existing person. Like, how do I do my job really well? Okay, well, I've got to learn all this stuff. Okay, well, where do I learn it? Well, they go spend mm -hmm. weeks and weeks online reading through, you know, countless number of articles, you know, maybe a lot of them which are um, helpful, maybe a lot of them which aren't helpful. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> just to try and feel like, okay, I've got some sense of what's going on here uh, versus having, you know, guidance that says like, hey, go from here, go from, you know, 
point A to point B, and here's that plan. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know that that's a very fine line that you need to make sure that you balance, where you're giving people um, information that's helpful and that that's going to be usual, uh, usable, um, but at the same time not overloading them because. Yeah. If you're like me, you tend to tune things things out. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this. I mean, that's actually some really good feedback. I had talked to one of our design managers um, at one point, mm-hmm. and um, you know, he was kind enough to be very candid with me. It's just like I, I get that we need to do this or these, you know, changes, mm-hmm. um, but my team is overwhelmed with the amount of change that we've had to incur over the past you know say six months or whatever it is it's like we had to do this and we had to change that we had to change this and we had to change that and now we're like i was like change is pretty much inevitable especially in our field like we're going to constantly have to be improving and changing things Mm -hmm. but to his point it was like too much change for his team in a short period of time he's like how do we get uh smarter about like kind of spreading this out, like what are the critical changes that we need to make and how do we back it up against the next change instead of having to, you know, go through a gauntlet of like 12 changes all at the same time. And I was like, that's actually <laughs> really good feedback. Yeah. You know, it isn't until we understand, it's like, I don't have, a, you know, 100% perspective over all the changes that are going on within an organization. You know, right. it's, there might be changes coming from some other direction that I'm not even aware of. So that becomes a logistical sort of puzzle that we're, you know, working on improving too, is making sure that we're not introducing too much change on teams all at the same time. Yeah. So definitely got to find that healthy balance. Right. So obviously I have, you know, you know me, I have all kinds of questions, but before we kind of touched on those, I was just wondering if you had any other topics or just because we touched on the, uh, which one was it? The the two sides of design of the design ops coin. Mm-hmm. We talked about the importance of accessible design systems mm-hmm. with our friend and coworker Sherry. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any other talks that really stood out to you? Um, there was um, Melissa's talk on uh, driving business values through design ops. I thought this this was a really interesting sort of application. Um, I'm, I'm probably not going to do this one justice. So mm-hmm. for the folks listening, you know, if you get the opportunity to actually like watch that talk, um, uh, she's going to do a way more justice than I did. But the idea is we like, we definitely should just, by the way, we should have some Twitter or Instagram accounts by then. So yeah. people can tell us that we're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we'll also put them up in the show notes too, if we can. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, uh, essentially what she was talking about was, you know, as a company, as an organization, um, there are specific, you know, vision values um, that, you know, companies and organizations kind of align to. And from a design ops perspective, you can align your programs, your initiatives, your solutions to support those values. Um, Mm -hmm. They were talking about, I don't remember the specific um, value that they were talking about, but I'll, I'll 
kind of speak to some of the things. So one of the things they were, they were talking about was like, how might we design time and create space for more innovation in our work? Um, and what they were talking about was, you know, they were looking at improving, you know, employee success store, uh, scores, um, influencing like product roadmap and securing new product feature investments. They were also, you know, describing some of the things around highlighting the importance of design-led vision work. Uh, and then while all this is happening, you know, stronger connection uh, and influence with executives and their, their product partners. And what they were finding was this was pointing back to one of their core sort of values so they were trying to figure out like how do we improve the culture of our organization while pointing to a given value so this is what they were trying to accomplish so i think their the value might have been an innovation uh, um, i might be mistaken but i think that's what it was so you know what their sort of solution was is they're talking about redesigning rituals in such a way where you know they could support those values and dedicate time specifically towards value-based work while also you know communicating the improvements with like kpis and celebrating not only small wins but talking about recognizing the evangelization um, of like the outcomes that they were actually achieving so mm -hmm. all of this saying it's like oh we want innovation innovation's a value how do we as design ops create change within our culture to support this innovation like what are the types of things that we can do to operationalize this value so they were talking about you know like i said just small changes in the way of being like hey look we are innovating and a lot of times maybe it's just communicating it's like we are innovating but nobody knows that we're innovating so how do we communicate this innovation so that might be just a shift um i think one of the more sort of like close to the heart sort of situations. I think um, another one of theirs was they were talking about community. And it was like, you know, how do they, um, let me see where my notes were again. How might we commit our time and utilize our design expertise to support our communities? You know, so they started mm -hmm. looking at ways to um, actually bake in community time into their calendars so it was like hey if we keep talking about like community is important community is important community is important a lot of us aren't going to go and say like well i'm going to go work on the weekend i'm going to go work at night you know time away from my family so they started becoming smarter about like well you know i forget what it was maybe like once a quarter or like once a maybe it was once a year they would schedule time in the entire organization's like calendars be like this week is dedicated towards community. This is community mm -hmm. work week. So they plan for it. Mm -hmm. That's that's an operational thing. This points back to one of their values of community. So uh -huh. for me, it was kind of like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. So this 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 question kept ringing in my head. It's like, how might we operationalize our organizational values? You know, mm -hmm. start thinking about what the values are, and then how can you set up things in such a way that it supports those values from a design ops perspective uh, it was a really 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 good talk and i felt like there was a lot of really interesting things that kind of came out of it um the um what was the one thing they were talking about in here that was interesting about it too um 
so yeah I think they had planned in certain like smaller snippets so there might have been like one big sort of community activity there may have been like smaller like periodical sort of like community things but mm -hmm. honestly it was just oh I know what it was it was part of their offsites as well that was the other thing and I, I remember this being one of my sort of highlights of one of my trips when I came out uh, for one of our like on sites uh, mm -hmm. where we were is our team had gotten together and actually uh, volunteered some of our time uh, at one of the local neighborhood farms there in, where was it, San Jose, I want to say. And I remember thinking, wow, not only do I get to meet these people that are volunteering their time to actually like manage and run this neighborhood farm, um, but we're also contributing to, you know, something that means a lot to us, you know, to be able to like schedule that time is like, hey, you know, we're all going to get together for this offsite or this onsite. And then part of that is like, we're actually going to do some like community service as well. And I was like, that's, that's exactly what, you know, operationalizing that value. That's an example of that. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking when we got to do that, I was like, oh man, that was so much fun. You know, there was obviously some logistics of getting it off the ground, but when it when everything was said and done, a lot of people just had to show up and participate, mm. and you know, had a good time about it. That's pretty cool. You know, I don't know how much if if they touched on it at all, but I think what's intriguing is um, this notion of business values through design ops, but also how would how does the business you know, and, and when I say that, I, I use that generic term to talk about like PM and stakeholders, executives, people mm -hmm. outside of the design realm. Have you heard of any instances of them understanding the value of design ops or them being made aware of design ops? Because me personally, I, I haven't really done that. I haven't really taken the time. I don't know if it's necessary or, or actually even worth it, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious if at that level, if design ups, you know, reaches out and, and can affect them or if they see value in it? Um, so this is a really good question. I've thought about this from time to time, too. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. Their design in a lot of our product partners' eyes has this impression of, like, special little snowflakes sometimes. <laughs> and I worry too much about being like, hey, here's another special little special snowflake <laughs> called Design yeah. Ops and how great it is. Um, so there's that side. <laughs> yeah. But on the flip side, to me, I think it is important for our product partners to understand like why Design Ops exists and the value that it's doing. But I want to circle back to my comment about like change management a little bit earlier where it was like why does it exist and mm -hmm. why is it important to them and i think right. we have to change that dialogue to make mm -hmm. sure that we're communicating that in a way to our audience that those those product partners that they understand it now is it a like formalized you know presentation that's like this is the value design ops and why it's so important to you mm -hmm. i don't think Probably so not. I don't think yeah. so. I think it's more like results. 
like outcomes. Like, they're going to see the effects of it. Like when designers mm -hmm. are able to work more effectively uh, cross-functionally, when designers are planning more effectively, when designers are happier and healthier, when designers are having you know better output of the work they're doing. And they, as a designer, can speak to the reason why things are so much better is because of design ops. All of a sudden, those product partners would be like, oh shit, the proof's in the pudding. Right, exactly. No, that's an excellent way to put it. You know, they don't want, they don't care to see your slide deck about the different component <laughs> libraries or, you know, yeah. how you build your end-to-end -end story. They just want to see how the requirements that they gave you um, turned into designs that eventually increased revenue, you know, increased, you know, made the funnel work better, whatever, you know, yeah. the, the metric that they're looking for. Yeah, that's all they really care about. Or, you know, for the teams that are really responsive to things, also see like how that designer or those designers have actually improved the cross-functional relationship. Mm -hmm. Like they are working together more effectively. They are, um, you know, uh, operating at a higher like psychological safety you know, able to share more candidly uh, in quicker cycles, be able to, you know, reduce debt. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of come into play. Um, mm -hmm. You know, design ops being able to affect, you know, better design, like there's so many facets. And I know we've talked about this before. It's like, it's not just processes better and tools are better. Like, it's also like that designer is happier. The designer is more focused, the designer is less distracted, has less friction, is able to connect and communicate more effectively with their cross-functional you know, cross partners. Mm -hmm. No, that's an excellent point. But yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I was just curious if, if you had heard about that. Obviously, you thought about it, but I was just wondering if there was any instances that you can recall where that happened. Um, I, haven't, I don't think I've come across anything where folks have actually talked about going and evangelizing design ops like cross-functionally. Um, I know I wanted to actually spend time with cross-functional partners to really understand like what they need from design. And I mm -hmm. think that's also another opportunity for design ops to make an impact cross-functionally is mm -hmm. to come in and say, hey, I'm not a designer. I support the designers that get you know design done. Um, and they work with you. And I, I want to understand from your perspective, you know, how that working relationship is and what can make it better. Like, what do you need from design? You know, do you need better communication, um, better prototypes, less uh, time spent in meetings? You know, I don't know what it is. You know, have those conversations with them and then start to build that rapport with them that says, okay, I've heard these things from you, Mr or Mrs. Um, uh, product manager, you know, team of engineers. And these are things that we've heard. And, oh, guess what? There's a theme across our teams of these two or three things. We're going to work on these. And, you know, you know, give us some time to figure out what we can do. And then, you know, six months later, like check in again and be like, hey, we had a conversation a while back about these things that you were looking for to improve you know from a design perspective and we made some changes and we wanted to see if like are you seeing these changes are they are they coming through um to me 
that's when design ops starts to kind of make its own presence in those cross-functional partners eyes it's like you have some person that's not a designer coming in and asking like how they can improve things for them and then they actually make changes to actually improve those things okay who's this person how do we get more of them because i like this yeah yeah no that's an excellent point Well, we're coming up on an hour. Was there any other topics that, <laughs> that you wanted to touch on? Gosh, these always go so fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. And don't forget, I still have my, my, my topic questions. Yeah, no kidding, right? We haven't even hit the topic questions yet. Um, the uh, What was it? I think his name was Fareed. He was talking about automation for large enterprise teams. Um, mm, yeah. He was he was talking about, you know, analyzing your process for weak spots. And this is something that I do from time to time. But mm -hmm. um, to me, like the analysis needs to be done. And this is not saying anything on him. I, I'm building upon what he said. I think the analysis needs to be supported by evidence from within the teams. It's one thing to say like, hey, it seems like there's some weak spots here and here in our process. It's another thing to actually have evidence from the teams that says like, we're really struggling here and here. Mm -hmm. So making sure that that analysis is supported by, you know, some evidence. Um, you know, he was talking about including tips in your practices and process. I thought this was a really interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about it before. So it's like, hey, in your process, you know, you go from this to this, you know, maybe it's like you go from discovery to, uh, you know, um, you know, defining things, whatever it happens to be. And it's like, mm -hmm. here's some tips on how you can do that effectively, you know, get those tips from your really seasoned people, whether that's from, you know, within your team that already exists or from, you know, something in the industry, but figure out ways that you can provide that additional layer of, guidance for folks that are new or for folks that aren't as seasoned those tips mm, really come yeah. helpful and it's not just the process of like you know how you go from discovery to defining something you know it could also be tips in like how to build prototypes mm -hmm. you know there's a lot that of things <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of things there and i was like oh okay this started to kind of get my brain thinking i was like there's probably you know mountains of ways of providing those tips to folks you know where it's just like hey here's this information if you're if you need it great take it if you don't cool you know you don't need it same great don't use it <laughs> <laughs> um you know uh what was another thing he mentioned he was talking about uh speed and quality are now the competitive advantage and i was like oh wow yes hmm. this to me I'd be really curious to see, and I think this is the reason why design ops is growing the way that it is. Um, design used to be the competitive advantage seven, mm. seven years ago. If you had a design yeah. team, all of a sudden, like your product was like, you know, we've had, you know, 300% blah, 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 increase customer satisfaction and, you know, sales and, you know, you know, whatever sort of important business metric that was going on. It was always pointing to like designs. Like you have a designer now, 
okay, cool, your product is like amazing and you're destroying your customers <laughs> or not your customers, but your competition. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> destroy your customers, uh, destroying the competition. Well, now, you know, there's designers all over the place and more and more teams have designers. In fact, it, I find it very infrequent that, you know, product teams don't have a designer now. Mm -hmm. So the new competitive advantage <laughs> is like speed and quality, uh, which points to what we're doing in design ops. We're helping mm -hmm. make more effective, you know, systems, um, processes, culture, all the things that kind of map to the work that design's doing. So, you know, everybody having designers, we're all kind of like level set. So now it's a matter of like, how can designers work more effectively? How mm -hmm. can, how can we get those insights faster and more, um, more accurate? How can we um, help reduce burnout so that people feel sure. the ability and desire to put in, you know, hundred percent. I'm not one of those people that says like 110%. Like, in <laughs> fact, I don't even think it's very reasonable to even expect a hundred percent, especially with what we're going on right now. Like expecting 70 or 80% of people right now seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's what I mean is like, if, if say you're a designer, I think Dave, Dave and I've talked about this a couple of different times, like as a designer, if you're spending less than, you know, 50% of your time actually designing, mm -hmm. that's a lot of opportunity for design ops. Mm -hmm. So bring in design ops, people are able to design, they're able to design more, more effectively, more efficiently. They get solutions out uh, faster to the marketplace. Their customers are happier. They're able to make shifts in the marketplace a lot faster. Like that's mm -hmm. a huge competitive advantage, figuring out where those, those weak spots are, those opportunities, um, and then effectively figuring out how to solve them, getting solutions in place, and then kind of moving on to the next thing. Yeah. No, I think that's amazing. Um, just the notion of um, automating design ops. Um, can you give an example of either a, a process that you've learned to automate or that you're thinking is going to be the quickest and easiest to automate? Because I'm struggling to see how, and, and again, you know, I'm thinking horizontally, right, at, at the product level where you, yeah. you're probably more in the vertical team level. Um, but yeah, from my perspective, I'm trying to understand. Huh? Flip the two. <laughs> okay, sorry. The vertical. So the vertical is the product. The horizontal is the team. Yeah, team or organization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like well, I'm struggling to see how you would product auto, automate um, automate a process automate a process at the product level. Um. The automate. And I guess it depends on how you're defining this. Uh, to me, design libraries are a form of automation. Mm, okay. This so, yeah, to like me my, was my like one like of the... this. This to me was like one of the first, like really critical pieces of of mm -hmm. operationalizing design, is mm. design libraries. That, yeah, that makes sense. I think my head is like thinking like a developer. Like a, I type one line, right, in and the then a bunch of stuff runs. Like, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I, I kind of figured that's where your question was too, but I, I felt like it was important to point to the things that weren't yes. immediately apparent. And to me, 
like automating design through libraries and design systems is a huge mm -hmm. part of this. And I, I don't know if it, get, if it gets enough credit, but to point more directly to, I think what your question was asking, um, something I've thought about is from the, um, like the onboarding experience. Mm -hmm. So automating an onboarding experience, uh, instead of, if we wanted to click a button and everything's done sort of situation, um, mm -hmm. one of the things I've been looking at is automating the onboarding experience. Uh, maybe not 100% of it, but a lot of the like repetitive nature of it. So mm -hmm. when you think about um, somebody having to learn a lot of domain knowledge given to a specific space, automating that into a recording, that's a very good example of this. That's true. And we've had a lot of our teams do this. They're just like, hey, I'm having to, you know, do this sort of like song and dance slideshow, you know, every time we get a new person in, I'm just going to record this. The next person that starts with us, they could just listen to the recording. That's automating. That's automating knowledge, knowledge transfer. Um, maybe another important one would be, and this is something I've been wanting to do, um, is, you know, we have a number of checkpoints sort of um, milestones, if you will, within the onboarding experience, like day one, let's go a step even further back, day zero, like they haven't actually started on day one with us yet, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to send out like a drip campaign of emails that kind of go to this new person that's starting. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, welcome to the team. You know, here's your, your welcome guide, kind of helps you understand and understand the culture where what we are about, what we do, how we operate these types of things instead of manually, you know, creating it, or if you have something that's already been created manually, like sending them the email, being able to automate that entire sort of drip campaign of their onboarding experience over the course of, you know, say two weeks to a month. And it's mm -hmm. like, Hey, so me having to remember or rely on a lot of like complicated systems to go through and be like, I need to send this email out. I need to go send this artifact out. I need to go send this resource out. I need to go send them this link, have mm -hmm. that all be automated. It's just like, okay, on day one, they get this. On day five, they get this. On day seven, they get this. Like, we yep. know at this point well enough, like, where that person is going to be needing certain bits of information or what types of resources. Mm -hmm. So we can automate that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't directly correlate it to, <laughs> to that, like, developer experience I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, no. You know, we did automate the product, you know, at the product level, we did automate the process of like templates, for example, yep. or master templates, you know, mm -hmm. being able to just click and drag them versus looking for a file. Right. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of layers. And I, I, I think mm -hmm. you and I could spend an entire, you know, uh, cast working on just the power behind libraries and the, mm -hmm. the nuances and the layers of stuff that we could actually build upon them. Um, mm -hmm. and how much time it saves. I know this has been one of the things that oh, I wish I could remember the exact the exact percentage of time saved that you had said uh, at one point in one of your talks. But mm, yeah, it was like, oh, it took me 30 minutes to build this prototype. And then by using like product libraries, I was able to do it in like, you know, under a minute. And I was like, yeah, that is mind blowing. And the fact that our <laughs> people aren't like beating down your door trying to figure out how to replicate what you're doing was like, yeah. like, I was in awe. I was like, really? 
<laughs> this didn't just sell itself here, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that's a that's an excellent point. Um but yeah, again, that's the true value of, of ops, right? Like yep. saving time. Yeah. Figuring making out things the, better. Yeah. It it's uh when I get to see people's that that light bulb that kind of like flickers and then mm. just like shines <laughs> on, they're like, oh, this is going to save me a lot of time. This is going to make things a lot easier for me. Yeah, yep. let me do this. I can get back to watching cat videos. <laughs> oh my gosh, I how come I didn't know this sooner? Where do I sign up? All right. Do you want my you want my first board and second born or? <laughs> You can have them both. Wait, did I say that last? Oh goodness, they won't listen to this, right? So no, no, they won't. They're not interested in anything I'm doing. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that, that that was great. I think the 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 burning question I have is, what is the future of design ops? Not only from the talk, but you know, from your perspective. Yeah. I think it's in in a couple of pieces. We touched on this a little bit before, this idea of like team ops, product ops, uh, like horizontal, vertical sort of perspectives. I think that that is the evolution of design ops. That is one of them. The things in the future that we'll see is that this idea of people that are working at a very close uh, proximity to teams and understanding what they need, and then there becomes um, uh, they they become a proxy, a very close working relationship with a strategic layer that's helping an entire organization shift at once. Um, that's mm. going to become pretty much in in at least in my opinion, I think that will become like table stakes. There's mm. a lot of organizations that have already started to put similar um, concepts of this in place and are already starting to see a lot of um, positive results. The, mm -hmm. the thing I see, and this is the reason why I believe in this, um, is having, you know, a design ops team of one or two or three, uh, being able to scale to, um, you know, several hundred designers that you're supporting, it becomes really difficult. Uh, and what you need, uh, what I started to experience was I had really good working relationships with everybody in the organization up until about 150 people. Mm. Once it exceeded that, like my bandwidth was spread so thin, it was really difficult for me to keep a pulse on the organization and really understand what teams needed, what designers needed. So what happens is you need to start building like um, uh, some sort of relationship with people that are closer to the work that's being done mm, yeah so that you and then being able to develop that relationship with those people so that they're communicating in both directions to understand like hey this is what the team i'm supporting sees or is experiencing or needs and that's happening from you know all of the teams to like one or two or three points or whatever happens to be uh so it's a way of being able to synthesize large volumes of information across numerous teams very easily uh, instead of having to do it like one-off. Like me having 150 conversations was getting to be almost impossible. Um, now that we're up over, now that we're up over 300 people, it's, it's not even reasonable. Um, so mm -hmm. I've got to figure out like, how do I have those meaningful conversations with say like 20 or 30 people? Mm -hmm. Who are those 20 or 30 people? Who are the people that are closest to the work that's being done? 
those start to become your design leads or your like uh, design program managers and stuff. Mm, that makes sense. So they become the voice of the team. You know, obviously there's probably some, what is it? Some, um, you know, lost in translation situations that are happening um, mm -hmm. as, you know, that team is communicating with that lead and or uh, DPM. And then that information is then being synthesized and being, you know, communicated into, you know, that horizontal layer. Um, but I think over time, you know, you start to develop that cadence and it becomes more well-oiled. That's, that's what my hope is, my, my hypothesis, if you will. Mm -hmm. the, the other, like, change that I see, like the future of design ops, is becoming more effective at driving, like, business outcomes. Mm -hmm. So kind of talking to what we were saying before about, like, you know, driving business values through design ops, same, same sort mm -hmm. of concept where it's like, hey, here is, you know, our objective or our series of objectives. How does design ops align to those and help the organization um, succeed in those objectives? How do we support teams in accomplishing those objectives? Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to go through and say like, hey, we're going to go and increase our customer satisfaction. Okay. Well, what does that, what does that boil down to? Like we have right. to do all these things in the product. Maybe it's improving stuff like accessibility. Maybe it's um, reducing the time to market. Like all of those start to become operational things. So if we want to increase you know, customer satisfaction, design ops sees that that is a, a critical business objective that they're trying to accomplish. How do we start to establish better practices, uh, better education, better process, you know, better tooling and stuff along those lines, get those things in place so that designers can actually accomplish that objective. That's an excellent point. So, and, that, and that's, that's a lot from the kind of, I'm not going to say operations, right? Everything is ops. That's, <laughs> um, that's like the kind of interpersonal you know, team to team, cross functional perspective. Right. Is there was there any t talks or discussion more tactically? You know, where where I live in the product and the day to day minutia that uh, of you know pixel pushing kind of kind of future. Um. No. I. The things that were coming out were pretty high level. I think somewhat, somewhat. Um, strategic, I guess, to some extent. I feel like mm -hmm. there's design ops is in a lot of ways helping designers understand what the business is needing. Mm -hmm. So um, I know you and I have had conversations about this in the past where, where is like, uh, you know, hey, I'm a designer and I've been doing this for a while and I want to kind of grow. Should I start, you know, coding? And, you know, mm, for those yeah. designers that I hear that, you know, ask that question, I'm always like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say no, but if you were to spend mm -hmm. your time working in something, understand the business, work a lot closer with your product manager. When you're able to understand what the business needs, then you're able to align yourself in the work that you're doing and be able to speak the language of the business and then be more effective in your role. So that when it comes down to those conversations where the product team is arguing about something, and you're like, this is the objective we're trying to accomplish. 
and you're a designer that's actually like pushing for that, like that's a huge boost. So to me, that's what design ops is helping to facilitate is educate our designers in such a way that they are able to, you know, speak the language of the business. Yeah. It, it took me a while to, to realize that. And, you know, I, 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 I very much subscribe to that school of thought. And we probably mentioned it before, right? Like this whole notion of design or development being automated in the future. Like, you know, you may see less, you know, front end developers, you may see less designers, but you're not going to have, uh, you know, AI or whatever processes replace someone who can think at a strategic level, who can talk to PM, who can talk to legal, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. understand the goal of the business and the metric that the business is trying to solve and yeah. turn that into kind of a design solution versus, yeah. you know, you ask a PM, hey, hey, Brian can, uh, he, he knows how to do HTML now. Well, okay, cool. <laughs> so, all right, I don't, I don't care. But if you say, hey, Brian was able to have this conversation. He took this requirement and he spoke with the back office team and they agreed, but they had this feedback. And then the PM's like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that's the value. That's the growth areas. But yes, um, 100%. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to me, I, I see the trajectory of growth in the design ops field. Um, I, we might have mentioned this in another cast. Um, being steeper, like that trajectory of growth is going to be steeper in design ops than what we saw in design over the past, like, mm, say, 10 mm-hmm. years. Design ops is going to grow so fast. Yeah. So the people that are in their given roles right now or considering these roles, um, I've had conversations with you know folks like you. I've had folk conversations with other designers that are even considering like design ops. You know, it's mm. like, hey, do I really want to get into this? You know, do I have a, a, you know, a path to grow into this within my career? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's hard to convince people of something. They've got to see the value in it themselves. But my, my answer yeah. is always, yes, this, this field is not going anywhere. <laughs> if anything, mm-hmm. it, the people are doubling and tripling down on the work that we're doing. So if you're interested in it, yeah, it's a good time to get in. No, for sure. And me, I'm, I'm kind of balancing it with my own growth and my own, you know, trajectory that I'm trying to work towards, but also, you know, making sure, and, and this is probably the other side of the coin, right? Like you don't have to necessarily be in a design ops role to make an impact. Oh, hundred um, percent. I'm making sure that design ops is one of kind of like the core pillars of my foundation. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you're... You said, been doing it for a long time, even not, well, not even realizing it was ops or re- realizing <laughs> it was a thing. It was just part of our, our natural work ethic. Yeah. No. And then this, this kind of comes back to advocacy again, you know, mm-hmm. and I've looked at you as you know, a design ops, an ops advocate. Um, it's finding people within your team, within your organization that are already kind of have this mindset or these values and how do you support them and work with them because they become your your bridge into the teams to one, you know, possibly get that information to understand mm-hmm. like what teams are you know struggling with, but two also help you become help help that voice of design ops come through the value of like what's being done. So yeah, to your point, it's like, hey, um, I think you and I've had conversations about you doing kind of design ops related stuff for several years now. 
Um, oh, yeah. That hasn't changed. If anything, I feel like it's galvanized more. But you still enjoy doing the design work. And mm-hmm. to me, there's like, that's the best of both worlds for some people. Keep mm-hmm. riding it. For sure. For sure. Cool. Thanks, man. This was fun. Yes, sir. I'll talk soon. All right, brother. Take care. Take care. As always, thanks for tuning in. And remember, if you have any feedback or thoughts you want to share with us, you can hit us up on Instagram. You can find us at the Ops of Design. Also, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tune in next episode where we have our first guest on the show. We're excited to get ramping up and we hope to bring you more valuable guests onto the podcast. So take care. We'll catch you next time.